Previously on the podcast, we discussed the UK Biobank, a project here in the UK that gathers biological data in bulk for researchers to use. It's been going since 2006, and at this point it's got half a million people's DNA on record. But those people are, in the words of Gins and Genes panellist Eva Higginbottom, 94.6% white. Which, at the time they started, was totally representative of the UK. But the UK, Europe, Japan and the USA are the places that currently have these kind of gene treasure troves. And because in this field big data equals big results, well, that's where research happens. There is a dearth of African studies in genetics. I've been speaking to a geneticist called Deepti Gurdasani. But despite this, a lot of the focus on genetic studies has been among European populations where we've developed resources of hundreds of thousands of individuals, whereas in genetics in Africa, we're still lagging behind. Deepti and others see a potential problem here. It's not like Europeans and Africans have wildly different DNA, but there are some subtle differences. And as doctors start to use genetics more and more when looking at things like diabetes, those differences might become crucial. So this month on the show, a story about challenging orthodoxy and addressing inequality, about biases in science, and about rights and ethics. This is the story of Africa's biggest ever genetic study. And then, controversy over what happened next. I'm Phil Sanson, and this is Naked Genetics. Deepti Gurdasani used to be a researcher at an institute called the Sanger in Cambridge. She was working to overturn a European and Asian bias in genetics, and she was just one part of a big, big project. A collaboration with the Medical Research Council Uganda and the Uganda Virus Research Institute that has occurred over a decade. And a lot of this work was actually led by uh, Shegun Fatumo, who is trained in genome-wide association study analysis through this process. Shagun Fatimo is a scientist who's originally from Nigeria, who became one of the key figures here. I came to the University of Cambridge and Sangha to do a postdoc. Shagun worked closely with Deepti to create what they now call the Uganda Genome Resource. This is very much the first large-scale data set that examines genome sequences, genetic diversity within Uganda, as well as looks at the association between genes and different clinical traits. Where in Uganda exactly are we talking about? Southwestern rural Uganda, essentially 25 villages. So we went to the rural community, talked with the leadership of the village, make them to understand what we're trying to do. Were people interested? Were they keen? Yes, I think uh, it's very interesting to let you know that in Africa, people are very receptive to research compared to what you will see, for example, in the Western world. This is a community that was quite primed to medical research as they had participated in other studies before. Since 1989, every year. And they were very keen to participate in a study that looked at risk factors for things like heart disease, diabetes and high blood pressure. These are diseases that are becoming more and more common in different parts of Africa. Also, everyone in the study got free treatment for their high blood cholesterol or high blood pressure or things that could increase the heart, their risk for heart disease. What did you get out in the end? How many people's genes or, or data did you get? So in the end, we had a data on about 6,400 individuals from this region. We had 
whole genome sequencing data on 2,000 individuals. This is one of the largest and most comprehensive studies that has been carried out within Africa. Those are unprecedented numbers for genetics in Africa, thousands of whole genomes. And there's some smaller data sets too, from places like Egypt and South Africa, that the team could get access to. We combined the data with other resources that we had access to within Africa to develop a data set of about 14,000 individuals. And we looked at the association between different genes and a number of diseases, including diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels. Were you surprised by what you eventually got out the other end? Yes, I think the biggest surprise for us was looking at the new genes that we found associated with disease. And almost all of them were driven by genetic variants that were only found in African populations. They found a bunch of stuff, new genes and versions of genes that are linked in different ways to people's health. Some of this genetic variance barely exists outside of Africa. And according to Shagun Fatimo, some of it straight up doesn't exist outside of Africa. Africa, for example, is very important to a genomic study. This variant is more diverse in African population compared to other population. It's where we all came from, isn't it? Yeah, that's what we, exactly. So that's where we all came from. So what that means is that there are some variation that you will find in African population that you would never find elsewhere. Both Deepti and Shagan told me about one gene variant in particular. One that particularly stands out was an association we found between a particular genetic variant that causes a blood disorder called alpha thalassemia. Alpha thalassemia? <laughs> alpha thalassemia. It's a blood disorder that leads to anemia. A blood disorder that leads to anemia. Which is very common in Africans. So it's found in about 22% of Africans. And it's almost absent in European populations. But in Africa, in regions where malaria is endemic, having this particular disorder can protect you from severe malaria and actually help survival. Really? So one disorder helps you, stops you getting another disease? Yes, it's really interesting. There are several blood disorders that have been diagnosed in Africans, the alpha thalassemia variant and sickle cell anemia, both of which protect against severe malaria. They actually help you survive. So we found that this was associated, this particular variant was associated with a marker for diabetes, which we call glycated hemoglobin. This is a marker that's used commonly to diagnose diabetes everywhere in the world. But we found that this genetic variant changed the levels of glycated hemoglobin independently of whether somebody had diabetes or not. Glycated hemoglobin. Hemoglobin being the stuff in your red blood cells that carries oxygen around the body, and glycated meaning bonded with sugar. So glycated hemoglobin is linked to blood sugar. It's a really common type of health checkup because instead of just your blood sugar at a single point, glycated hemoglobin gives the average blood sugar levels over the past two or three months so you can spot long-term patterns and hopefully diabetes. But here's the rub. Deepti is saying that her alpha thalassemia gene changes your glycated hemoglobin. That means a diabetes test is no longer a diabetes test. Yes, so we may be picking up people with alpha thalassemia rather than picking up people who have or don't have diabetes. I see. So there's actual, you know, not only are there big differences in the genetics, there's real world implications. 
Yes, exactly. And this is what we find in African studies. African populations respond differently to drugs. They have genetic variants that cause particular markers to change. So we really have to rethink how we diagnose diseases in African populations and how they respond to drugs, etc. when we study genetics specifically in these populations. Deepti Gurdasani and Shegun Fatimo. And you can find their study in the journal Cell. That was one example of how differences in genetic variation between different groups of people are not trivial. And here comes another. A second study used the same Uganda genome resource to look at the genes behind fats in your blood, like cholesterol. Blood fat levels are one of the big things that put you at risk of cardiovascular disease. And in Europeans and Asians, the genes involved are ones that we know about and can check people for. But in this group of Ugandan people, that turns out to be completely not true. I spoke to the lead author, Carolina Kuchenbecker, who did this work while also previously at the Sanger Institute. A lot of the studies we've done only included people of European descent. And that's quite important because now we know about thousands and thousands of parts of the genome that link to diseases. Imagine that's all just applicable to white people. That would be a major problem for a country like the UK. So what we did is we studied cholesterol in different groups. So we had data from China, Japan, from the UK, Europe, and also from Uganda. What we found was actually quite surprising. There was a group of genes that affect cholesterol in white people, but doesn't do so in the Ugandans. How is that possible? One hypothesis to explain this difference in this case is that some of the genes make you eat more unhealthy foods that contain a lot of cholesterol. Now take the same gene in rural Uganda. You can't just drop into McDonald's. It's impossible. The gene wouldn't affect your cholesterol because it can't make you eat more unhealthy food. That's a very simple example. The biology behind some of the other genes might be more complicated or more biological in the sense that even if you eat unhealthily, it affects how your body metabolizes. But my guess is that it's really all about diet. And is cholesterol something that we already knew a lot of the genes that were, I guess we thought were responsible for it? Yes, definitely. So cholesterol has been very well studied because it's so important. Cholesterol is one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease. The genetic aspect of it is becoming more and more clinically relevant. We're beginning to use it in, in clinics to screen people, to understand their diseases, to identify people at risk. But based on what we found, so it would only be applicable for people from a European background. Yeah, it seems like a, a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason is just that we didn't have data for anyone else for such a long time. And then there was the general assumption that everything would be universal. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a major problem that we have to address. Why have most studies been done for only white people? In the early days of genetics, we wanted to make sure that the findings are actually correct. And if you 
look at a group that's more similar to each other, that's actually easier. You feel more confident. But then this has become a sort of thing that everybody does. I think there's also a bit of a, a racial bias in terms of most researchers in the countries where this research is done are, are white. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't recognized as a problem for a long time. Now, what groups do you actually mean when you say that? Because I know there's no such thing as like a genetic race of white people versus a genetic race of black people. That's all debunked science. You're completely right. Genetics operate on a continuum. When I say groups, I'm a bit artificially putting people together. What has happened is that between these so-called groups, there are some small genetic differences, and that happened in our population history. There's a lot of mixing. It's a continuous thing. But most of the time, the people who have been studied are the ones who have predominantly European ancestry. And they are also, of course, different to some extent, but there are very few people with more African ancestry that have been included in these studies. And even across Europe, the three countries that have been studied really extensively is the US, the UK and, and Iceland. But you keep saying ancestry. It sounds like that's the key thing, right? Absolutely. We're really defining this based on genetics. You did just say that you thought that some of the gene variants for cholesterol were different for Ugandan people based on the environment they lived in? Isn't, in this case, the environment the more important thing rather than where you come from? Yes, it could be. But it, it tells us that when we study genetics, in a way, a lot of geneticists think this is an easy thing to do because genetics are sort of very clear, right? You carry a gene variant or you don't, and it doesn't change. The takeaway message from this is that genetics are happening in environments there's so much variation. And of course, you know, genetics are so complex that it would be a silly assumption to think that they're just working the same way everywhere. What are the implications also if you maybe you live in the UK and you go to see your doctor about your cholesterol, but you're from Uganda or you've got a parent from Uganda or a grandparent or something like that? Is this information then going to make a difference? Yes. So if you have a grandparent from Uganda and you go to the hospital and you want to know about your genetic risk for high cholesterol, we can't help you in a way. That was Carolina Kuchenbecker talking about her study that's out now in the journal Nature Communications. So that's the case for studying genetics in Africa. Because it's where humans originally come from, in Africa, people have more genetic variation than anywhere else. And that's key to understanding what genes are behind what disease, not just for Africa, but globally. And recently, there's been a lot of funding from all over the place for researchers in Africa, hence the Uganda Genome Resource, among many other projects. But then, here at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, things started to go wrong. And a question of ethics spiraled into a number of people losing their jobs. That is after the break. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. 
This is where we look at gaming news. If you want to take it to a, somebody else's house, you have to buy an add-on into your subscription service oh, outside of your property. Not as simple as you might think. Exactly that. Reviews. So I'm at a spot on the map where horses are supposed to be, but I'm not having much luck at the moment. And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. I've got to a bit with some scarecrows, and it's actually quite tough, really. And this used to be quite an easy game that you just pick up and play. Download Naked Gaming wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Naked Genetics. I'm Phil Sansom. We've been talking about the Uganda Genome Resource, DNA from more than 6,000 people in rural Uganda, a project designed to burst open the playing field in genetics and nail down which genes are behind which disease. For scientists like Deepthi Gurdasani at the Sanger Institute in Cambridge, the obvious next step was to use this very data, along with a number of other sources from places like Egypt and South Africa, and feed it back into research methods, all for building more and more capacity for science in Africa. After all, now that this data tells you what genes are most interesting, you know exactly where to look in future. That was the vision, anyway, until a question of consent derailed the entire thing. Here's Deep D. In order to study hundreds of thousands of Africans, we wanted to build an efficient and cost-effective tool. What do you mean by tool? It's essentially a chip. It's a small chip with wells in it. So it's not able to build a full picture of somebody's DNA sequence, but it's able to provide a picture of between 100,000 to a million points across the genome that would best reflect the genetic diversity in Africa. So did you develop the chip? So we essentially looked at the consents and the ethics and noted that we would need to go back to the communities and the ethics committees And the process was taken out of our hands and senior managers at the Institute took this over and made the decision to go ahead and manufacture a product and commercialize it. When you say commercialize, are you talking like a 23andMe DNA test? No, no. By commercialize, I mean the array was sold to the Welcome Sanger Institute by Thermo Fisher. And there was essentially a purchase order placed by Sanger, which made clear that the Sanger would receive a certain fees in return. I'm confused. You were developing the chip. You were at the Sanger. Why are suddenly the Sanger the ones buying stuff? We can't actually manufacture the chip. The chip is has to be manufactured by a commercial organization because we don't hold the technology. And this is a commercial arrangement because Thermo Fisher is profiting from sales to Sanger. If that makes sense. Oh, the chip company is profiting. Exactly. You give them the data. As scientists, we are only able to say, oh, these are the genetic variants that we find in Africans. Like we found this alpha thalassemia variant. We want this to be on the chip, if that makes sense. It's like, for example, identifying a particular gene that a particular drug might work on, but the manufacture of the drug is done by a pharmaceutical company, you know. There were two parts to the commercialization. So the first part to the commercialization was that Sanger would buy the chip Thermo Fisher would profit from it. They would buy the chip for research. The second phase of commercialization was, which never took place because we intervened, was that the chip would be sold to third parties, other research institutions, other bodies across the world, and Sanger would receive a royalty share from that. Other partners were also supposed to receive a royalty share for that, but like I said, there was actually no consent or legal agreement to actually cover commercialization. And in the end, when we intervened, none of that took place. Right. 
ultimately commercialization gives money to both the Thurman Fisher and the Sanger. Exactly, yes. They wanted to buy the chip for African research. So essentially the chip was being developed to do a much larger study of about 100,000 individuals across Africa. And this was very much a project that we wanted to lead on. What was the permission issue? So there are different levels of permission issue. There was a permission issue with the actual consent from participants, because if you look at the consent for many of the data resources that were involved in developing this chip, they only had very restricted consent. So, for example, some of them had only consented to the use of data for diabetes. Some of them had only consented to the use of data to study people's ancestry and history of their populations. So the consent from participants didn't actually allow the use of their data in this way, and definitely not for the development of a commercial product for many of these. But even for research use, broader research use would have required us going back to the ethics committees and potentially even to the communities to ask their permission before proceeding. Even though the eventual chip was designed for research? Yes, because the organization that makes the chip definitely profits from it. So it is a for-profit exercise, and that is something that needs to be clearly explained to the communities who have provided the samples and the data. So how would you go about getting the extra permission? We and our African partners would have essentially gone back and spoken to communities, community leaders, and asked them how they felt about developing something like this and told them that this would be really, really useful for science across Africa, but it would mean that companies would profit. It would also have involved going back to the ethics committees and asking them, would it be ethical to proceed balancing individual consent and harm? How long does all that take? Probably around six months or so. Hang on. With the Uganda data in particular that we were talking about earlier, that was like a 10-year project. So six months isn't that bad. No, no, it isn't that bad. And, you know, it's something that we've done a lot. I mean, a lot of our studies involve field studies in different parts of the world. So we are used to going back, talking to communities, talking to research ethics committees and figuring out how to go about doing these things. So it definitely wasn't a long time. So why did it get taken out of your hands? I'm not really sure. Without passing judgment, yeah. I just don't understand. You already had a procedure in place and you had a plan to get the permissions. Yes. What benefit is there in not? I'm speculating here. But sure. had this been fully commercialized, it's a product that would have been used very, very widely across the research community. So it's something that potentially could have uh, resulted in a lot of financial incentive back to the organization. The second thing that I find quite striking is that the Sanger did discuss going ahead with the University of Cambridge, which was its partner within the UK, but didn't actually seek permission from the other African institutions. And potentially there is a thinking that African institutions may not be able to challenge legally something like this that happens, so they can be told about this later. I think there was also a fear that the price of the RA would go up if there was a huge delay. I think that was a real fear. So I think, again, one of the motivations may have been to keep the price down, but 
I think we argued that getting the ethics right was much, much more important than keeping the price low. Deepthi no longer works at the Sanger. And these are her own views on the commercialization, of course, not her employers or anyone else's. And she also wants to make it clear that the problems with the array are totally distinct from the Ugandan project, which a lot of people spent a decade working on. People like Shegun Fatima, who, again, was one of the key figures in this Uganda genome resource. His view on the consent issue is different, because while Deepti previously mentioned that some groups in South African Egypt only gave narrow consent, here Shegun is talking about Uganda only. So I would say that there are many categories of consent. As far as I understand, we had a broad consent. What that means is that the research subject, they allow us to use their sample for the study and also for official study, both in Uganda, in the UK, and also in the US and other countries. So what, what I cannot say specifically is if it allowed for commercialization. But what I do know is that uh, supposing that it does not allow for commercialization, there are always ways about it. We have an ethics committee in Uganda and other places in, in Africa, which normally you apply to them. So if you're not sure, you go to the Ugandan Ethics Committee? Yeah, if you're not clear about the, what the concept allows for, the right thing to do is to go back to the Ethics Committee. In this case, Uganda Ethics Committee and other Ethics Committee in Africa and ask for approval. It's important to note that the Sanger has been legally cleared of all wrongdoing by both a barrister and independent intellectual property lawyers. And the Sanger completely refutes allegations of misuse that come from partner organizations in Africa. The Sanger does have a reputation for good ethics. Decades ago, they were at the forefront of the legal battle to prevent anyone patenting people's genes for profit. Just like now they're at the forefront of improving research and opportunities in Africa, the very reason behind developing a tool for making that research cheaper and more accessible. I really wish that they'd agreed to my request for a specific comment, because at least when it comes to the consent issues, maybe they could explain themselves. But they didn't. I think it's a huge ethical issue, even above being a legal issue, because there is a lot of helicopter science that happens with African samples. And by that, I mean samples get taken out of Africa or data gets taken out of Africa. African researchers aren't involved. African institutes aren't involved. The communities who contribute to data aren't involved. And there is a, a long history of this. In the context of that, we have to be very, very sensitive to what's happened in the past and ensure that you know, African institutes and African researchers are empowered to lead their own research and to make decisions about what happens with their samples and data. Did the chips get made? Yes, they did. Uh, the chips got made, but unfortunately, there are about 75,000 chips that are lying in a warehouse which will expire in December, I believe. It's a lot of money. Yes, it was a lot of money, and it's Given how much more African research we need, if this had been done properly, that money would have gone towards creating a huge data set and looking at genetic determinants of disease in African populations that potentially could have benefited African research hugely. But unfortunately, those chips are probably never going to be used and will just expire as they lie there.
That's it for Naked Genetics in 2019. Thanks in this episode to Deep D. Gerdasani, Shagun Fatimo, and Carolina Kuchenbecker. If you have any thoughts or questions on what you heard, you can reach me by emailing phil at nakedscientist.com or by finding Naked Genetics on Twitter. Naked Genetics is, of course, just one podcast in a big, beautiful family of Naked Scientist podcasts. And I want to take the time now to recommend a few of them. If the brain is your thing, we have Naked Neuroscience. We have the eLife podcast, which covers life and biomedical sciences from the journal eLife. We have Space Boffins, who do all things space travel. And welcome to the newest member of our family, Naked Gaming, because who doesn't love games, right? All of those, very, very much worth your time. Naked Genetics will be back with more great stories in 2020. I've been Phil Sanson. Thanks for listening. And have a wonderful new year.